It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. lovers and welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y at WFYI.org. Also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Sosi. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which someday we'll update at filmsociology.tumblr.com. Kobe Slagle is in a meeting right now. Yes, serious business meetings here at Film Sociology offices. We also call it WFYI. Uh, so hopefully he will be joining us uh, in a little bit to get uh, to get a few extra words in. But joining me in studio today is the uh, Nouveau Arts editor, Emily Taylor, who's written the cover story, Rolling Up the Red Carpet, Indiana's Government Leaves Local Film Industry on the Cutting Room Floor, page 12. Emily, thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. Uh, now, normally... On the show, we start with what's new in theaters, and and I would be discussing the Natalie Portman Western, but I'm not going to because I want to start with Emily's article, uh, a really fine write-up. And I guess right off the bat, I need to ask, why does the state government hate cinema? Well, there, it's not so much that the state government has a vendetta against all cinema. Are you but... sure? We can't get a booze. We can't get booze or a car on Sundays. Apparently, <laughs> apparently they want to deny us that as well. Right, but... exactly, and our freedoms. Touche, touche. <laughs> Um, actually, the last time that Indiana had a film tax incentive, which is basically a percentage of money that filmmakers can get back instantly. So however much they say they spend a million dollars in the state, they can get you know 30% back, 20% back, however much the state decides, that they can kick right back to their investors. Okay. And uh, yeah, if I remember right, uh, yeah, you said 2011. And, and of course, what doesn't help matters is the neighboring states – it's almost double, sometimes triple that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in 2011, we only had about a 15% tax incentive where you look to Illinois and it's 30, 35. And so to be competitive, you really have to match that line. And there's, I think, was it there 10 states that have no uh, no tax incentive whatsoever today? Mm-hmm. Do we know the other states? Uh, I don't know that off the top of my head. Okay, all right. Um, I guess how did it get to this? I mean, I, I wondered if, and I, I I'm I'm going to be a crotchety old man and just say I still miss Jane Rulon to this very day. Besides being a dear friend, but you know, one time head of the Indiana Film Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm gonna I, I'll I'll be that. I, it had, did it start with that? With that? Uh, w- with her no longer with us? You know, it really, I think, took a turn around 2010. Um, They saw a steady decline of filmmakers who were actually applying for the tax incentive. The numbers kind of just drastically went down. And uh, after speaking to uh, John Vickers over at IU Cinema. Hi, John. (laughs) Hi, John. How you doing? (laughs) Um, 
he pinpointed it really well and said, you know, a lot of the problem was marketing. Uh, Indiana wasn't doing a fantastic job of luring these filmmakers here, wasn't doing a great job of promoting it, much less being competitive with other states. Okay, because uh, and it probably does not help matters in the last couple of years that we've had a couple of high profile films and they're supposed to be set in Indiana. Of course, Fault in Our Stars. Uh, and, and of course, it doesn't help matters much that we have an Indiana writer with John Green linked mm-hmm. to it, but also working in The Flash from earlier this year. And I know, uh, I believe, well, Paper Towns, of course, the film that uh, I, I do have to give. I do have to give Pittsburgh credit. They, they, they got a couple of shots that made Indy look pretty darn realistic in Pennsylvania. <laughs> that they did. That they did. And I think that it's, um, they're a group of uh, filmmakers and also legislators and even John at IU Cinema who are really working to try to keep that from happening again, specifically referring to The Fault in Our Stars. Like you said, Indiana author that everybody knows and loves, uh, set in Indiana, keeping that from being filmed elsewhere, making sure that that kind of thing stays in-house. Yeah, and and the, the little inside information with Ricky and the Flash, because that's supposed to be set in Indianapolis, not even close. Uh, there's one scene in a cafe with a cobblestone uh, side. It was cobblestone road. I was like, well, maybe one section of Zionsville, and that's a, <laughs> that's about it. But but also, um, Christopher Ayers, our news gen, news gent here at WFYI, got a uh, he he they uh, used a piece of his audio. There's a scene in the kitchen where uh, St- Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein are having the conversation, and in the background is Christopher Ayers of WFYI uh, and his news broadcast. So I guess it's easier to, to pay a WFYI news artist, news uh, reporter for his audio than it is to actually relocate the, the film project here in the state. Yeah, yeah, and that was a big thing with, you know, we see this in a couple of different movies where, you know, filmmakers will shoot majority of it elsewhere and then come to downtown Indy and catch a few quick shots or catch a few things of the IMA and things like that. Mm-hmm. And like the Fault in Our Stars, having recreating the, I believe it's the Funky Bone statue all the way in Pittsburgh. The, the so. Funky Bone statue and then, I, I, I'm sorry, religious folks, the church that's on Meridian Street uh, on the curve. Because I remember there is a, uh, and it's I believe it's mentioned in the book as well. Thank you, my daughter, for letting me read that. Um, but But there is a sign. And and the front looks just like that church. So you know, kudos to the location scouts on that. It, not not in a movie, not a movie, but there's a TV series out called An American Crime. Uh, it's on ABC, and this season it is being set in Indiana. And I remember seeing it was um, it was one of the previews that they have before movies at your local uh, chain theater. And yeah, there's a shot of the speedway. Yeah, and, yeah uh, perfect example. Yeah, really quick take, and, and now I'm wondering if that's just stock. I mean, if, if there's, you know, if there is stock footage of Indianapolis, the Circle, the Speedway, mm-hmm. maybe the State Fairgrounds. That's about it, I think. <laughs> yeah, some file somewhere that everyone's sharing with all these shots of Indiana. Could be, but um, yeah, those keeping those things from you know, being made outside of the state, I think, are going to be a big thing and a big initiative that you're going to see, especially in the 2017 legislature. Uh, John Vickers, for example, is working with is working with a group of uh, its filmmakers, several grads from IU, uh, repre- uh, representatives in the state house, to try to put together a really meaty, hefty bill to try to bring that tax incentive back. Mm-hmm. And though it's not quite as competitive with a lot of other states, it does have some really nice job incentives. Um, so hopefully that'll push it through the legislature. And it also provides really some fantastic opportunities uh, for filmmakers. And then even more, a little more groundswell support are you know filmmakers like Zach Spicer and Paul Schulberg, mm-hmm. who are you know they're working on filming. Uh, I believe it's called The Good Catholic down in Bloomington right now. Um, 
It's actually a really funny story uh, based on Paul's parents, actually. Okay. Um, I would say, yeah, because yeah, in the article you, you talked to a number of filmmakers. I mean, how many filmmakers were you able to communicate with as far I guess people, if, if people don't know, how many, you know, people who are trying to make movies in Indiana, whether, I mean, and, it's, and we're not talking studio stuff. I mean, we're talking independent and, and elsewhere, but uh, how many filmmakers were you able to contact as, as far as preparation for this? I believe I talked to eight altogether. Um Got a nice mix, and the responses had an underlying theme uh, and a lot of the same difficulties. And, I mean, for a lot of them, it comes down to the almighty dollar. It's the same problem in arts education and arts funding everywhere. But this has, you know, particular set of issues because it's such a high-grossing industry and because they're making so much money off of it once the feature film is made. So grants and things like that that are available to other artists aren't necessarily available to them. Do you do you think I'm, – I'm bashing on the state a little bit. Do you, do you think something that was – kind of just passed last year may also have an mm. undercurrent to it. I think you're hanging the nail on the head, too. Thanks, Pence. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, you look at you know businesses turning away because of RFRA and things like that. It, that absolutely extends into the creative industries. So I guess what what is uh, – you, you talked with John Vickers, and, and I mean – Besides the sell, what it needs to be done to sell the state. I mean, yeah, the numbers, of course, and numbers and dollars, that's a different battle. But I think um, I think for a lot of people, they, they don't realize, especially if you go northern Indiana and southern Indiana, it's not we're not just flat. That's that's you know, that's that's as old a old a stereotype as airplane food and in-laws. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, something that Erin Schneider with Film Indiana said to me that she spends a lot of her time really focusing on and trying to tell filmmakers whenever they approach her from inside the state or out of the state, uh, asking for resources, location shoots, things like that. And although we don't have the tax incentive, the cost of living here is so cheap, and it allows for filmmakers to be able to spend a lot more time here. And overall, it brings that budget down. And not to mention locations. Like you said, I mean, southern Indiana with rolling hills, places like Brown County, Bloomington. Hi, Robert Downey Jr. Remember remember <laughs> the movie was supposed to be set in Evansville? Was it Evansville? Yeah. So, so. Or no, um, uh, or not Madison. But anyway, supposed to be set in southern Indiana. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. And, and showing up at the, Indi- at the film festival was a nice touch, but still not shot here. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah, just the access to those kind of locations is a pretty big incentive for filmmakers. I mean, you can be downtown uh, shooting city streets, and later that afternoon, be in the country. They just cleaned the wooden statue. What, John Wooden, what more do you, in the legs, what more do you need? <laughs> well, it's funny, because I know a lot of musicians that play in the Chicagoland area that live in northern India for, for that exact same reason, because the, it's amazing what, a, what a, an imaginary line can do to change uh, dollars and cents, literally. Yeah, yeah. I ran into one filmmaker uh, named Catherine Crouch. Um, she's been known and recognized by the LGBT Film Festival here uh, for one of her one of her films, but she regularly goes up to Chicago to go shoot just because it's, you know, it's easier access to crews, you know, big pieces of equipment that you're going to need. If you need a crane or something like that for these, you know, high level shots, you have to go up there. There's nowhere you can rent it around here. You mentioned earlier, uh, film Indiana is that, um, the new, for lack of a better comparison, the new IFC or is that two different groups? Two different groups. Okay, uh, Film my Indi- apologies. Uh, Film Indiana is a two-person office, um, mostly headed by Aaron Schneider, and it's essentially just resources. Uh, I don't believe that's even consumes her full-time job. She does a couple other things as well. But 
she basically is contacted by, you know, different filmmakers from in and out of the state and tries to entice them as much as possible. Like, hey, we got, yeah, this is happening here. I I checked the the website earlier and, you know, here's a location that's been used for this and this and this. Yeah. And as far as also keeping people abreast of what's happening inside the state cinematically. Yeah. Yeah, uh, does a and she does a fantastic job of it. But you know, there's only so much that a two person office can do. Right. And without that tax incentive, you know, the big feature films just aren't going to look here. And it's been a while. It, it Because uh, it was fun looking. Uh, I know. Uh, I know our friend Sam did his top five uh, films shot in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Got issues with one of them, but that's another story. <laughs> Hi, Sam. It's not even in Oliver Stone's best film. Come on. Um, you have to go, go pick up a Nuvo and check that out. I'm hanging out with Emily Taylor of Nuvo talking about her uh, cover story, Rolling Up the Red Carpet. Indiana's government leaves the film industry on the cutting room floor. That's a lot. You got a lot of cinematic puns going in, in the article. We did. We had fun in that. No stone meeting. unturned. So how was, was like, um, and, and well, I know I, I could I could imagine Ed's version. It would just have to be cut. Hi, <laughs> the, Ed. We love you. We, <laughs> the cutting on and leaving it on the cinema floor was definitely his addition to that. Right. So, um, so, so I guess you, you talk with John, and and the legis- uh, it's going to be brought up to the legislature leg- legislature next year. Um, is this something that we're going to see? Like we're going to see footage of him and filmmakers in the state house presenting this and uh, doing a Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I sure hope so. I hope so. Um, I know that Nuva will definitely be covering it. Um, hopefully it gets the, the real teeth that it needs and gets the backing and support. It is, you know, a lot of money that the state does have to put forward, but the return on investment is huge. And more than anything, we're poised right now for the kind of marketing campaigns that can make it successful. Yeah. I mean, we're able to host a Super Bowl for crying out loud. I think we can <laughs> I think we can attract filmmakers. Yeah. It just yeah. seems that easy. Yeah, definitely. Um and I thought it was so interesting. Zach Spicer, who's, like I mentioned, filming The Good Catholic right now, he just recently created a production company called Pegasus that's using all IU grads, um, IU uh, musicians, a bunch of different people, pulling them together. And the whole idea of it is to show that good films can be made here and that they can come out of Indiana. So that kind of you know sticking to their guns and committing to shoot here um, are the kinds of things that I think will speak to the legislature. Fingers crossed. Are you from here originally? I am not. Where are you from originally? Boston. Oh, okay. Well, they have movies shot there all the time. It's true. It's true. <laughs> when, when did you come to Indiana? I came to Indiana in 2006. Okay. So. You noticed a growth in the last decade? I have. I have. Just the way that I think that Indianapolis residents more than anything have changed in the mentality and what they're willing to speak about. And the arts community has grown drastically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, all right. Uh, you know, we're going to take a short break. And Emily, I really appreciate you hanging out. And uh, but yeah, go go pick up Nuvo and and roll it up and and hit legislators over the head with it. Okay, maybe not, but you know, when it comes to seventeen, get ready. But um, anyway, we're, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, I'll talk a little bit about some movies that were shot in Indiana, and I'll talk about the Natalie Portman western I saw, and it's been on the shelf for a year and a half. So there. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org.
My name is Angelo Pizzo, and I'm listening to Film Sociology. Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msoci at WFYI.org, also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Soci. Hanging out with Emily Taylor, the arts editor for Nouveau News Weekly. We were discussing your cover story, Rolling Up the Red Carpet, which is about the uh, lack of filmmaking happening in Indiana, and hopefully that will lead to uh, to more filmmaking in the Big big riot act at the uh, legislature next year. Now you you said before the break you you grew up in Boston. You moved. To, you've been almost here a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your first impressions of the state uh, growing up? You know, honestly, they the biggest thing coming from Boston was just seeing the lack of. Honestly, it was a lack of culture. Uh, I felt like in that transition, there was a lack of. I didn't see as, as much arts. Didn't see as much of you know the kind of access that you had to different historical sites, um, even, you know, things like arts funding and stuff like that were very, very apparent to me. Mm-hmm. But over time, I think that those things have, have definitely swelled, and I think that uh, Hoosier's attitude towards them have changed a lot over the last 10 years. Cool. And uh, I would say, th- was, there any, was there any cinematic impressions of, of, uh, of the state? I'm, lo- I'm also looking at Sam Wattemeyer's list and wondered if those were things that you watched when you were younger. Hoosiers was. I can't say Hoosiers was, and then um, Natural Born Killers. I watched later <laughs> on in life, but <laughs> don't quite associate that with Indiana. No, no it's not a not. it's not a Hoosier film exactly. like Hoosiers or Rudy. <laughs> exactly. Um, to be honest, Hoosiers was my conception of Indiana before moving here. I just assumed that everybody was basketball, small towns. And well, there's a lot of them. Just it's a lot. Not where it's we are right now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, Sam Wanamaier, of course, who's been on the show. He's been a guest. He's been a substitute host for me. But he had he had his, on his list the top five films made in Indiana. So yeah, it's Natural Born Killers was made in Indiana, but not necessarily a Hoosier picture. But yeah, mm-hmm. Hoosiers is number one. Yeah, and of course you heard Angela Pizzo uh, before the break, and yeah, she must pass the ball four times before you shoot, and 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 it's made such an impression that. You know, uh, NBA players were wearing Hickory jerseys this year, even though there were no black players in Hickory. But anyway, it's a marketing tool and it's fine. And, you know, everyone's favorite wet blanket, Barbara Hershey. That's that's (laughs) fun. Uh, Number two is Rudy. Uh, For me, if um, if a film makes you go out and do research about it, whether, you know, to find out how truthful it is or you want to find out more about uh uh, a filmmaker or a subject. I think, you know, Oliver Stone's films are a lot like that. Michael Moore's films are a lot like that. Uh, don't, if you love Rudy, don't look up what happened to Rudy in real life after becoming an adult. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, number three, Eight Men Out, which is a, the great John Sayles film. And John Sayles one of my favorite filmmakers. That was, of course, shot here uh, in Indianapolis at Bush Stadium. And uh, also shot in sections of Evansville. And full disclosure, my father-in-law's arm is in a scene. He was one of the uh, cigar-smoking commissioners in one of the scenes with Dark Wood and old white guys. So that, that happened. WFY cameo there. Um, he, no, not him. But anyway, <laughs> but that's, that's nice of you to say. Uh, number four, the great documentary American Teen, um, which I remember showing to my daughter a few years ago to get her ready for uh, for grade school. And uh, still, still packs a wallop. And and yeah, Sam's pick number five is Natural Born Killers. It's not even Oliver Stone's best film, but yeah, it's a bit of satire. I need to watch because I remember my first newspaper job was in Fountain County, Indiana, on the western side of the state. And in the summer of 1994, I wrote apparently a very controversial column called "Why I Like Natural Born Killers in Pulp Fiction." 
because I lived in a farming community of less than 5,000. Oh, no. What was the controversy there? That I liked him. (laughs) (laughs) This was, uh, and by the way, speaking of uh, the borders, I couldn't even see it in Indiana at the time. I had to drive to Danville, Illinois, because that was 20 minutes away, and that was the metropolis by comparison. No kidding. Well, Covington, oh, I have fond memories of Covington, but um, I worked in Covington, and my office was in Attica. So, But where I lived, I was an hour's drive or less from Indy. Lafayette, Terre Haute, and Champaign-Urbana. But right over the border was Danville. And that's where, at that time, you could get cappuccinos, Chinese food, maybe not necessarily the best, used music. And there was the the six-screen mall multiplex. And that's where I saw a bunch of the stuff there. But uh, there was one theater in Attica. I think it's still in existence. But yeah, one screen in Fountain County, and that's about it. Anyway, but but I think it was... There, there was such an, you know, such an uproar over the amount of violence, and some people didn't quite get the satire of natural born killers, and and people just, you know, non cinephiles were kind of taken aback and clutching their pearls over that film as well as Pulp Fiction. So, um, but it looks, turns out Pulp Fiction still holds up pretty well. I maybe need to watch Natural Born Killers again. We will see. Um, let's see. The other thing I think of when we were talking about Indiana um, and films, uh, I know. Uh, Sam, I know it's number six on your list, but A League of Their Own, which was also shot in Evansville as well as here in mm-hmm. Indianapolis. And uh, But the other one that always cracks me up, it was my first impression. I went to Ball State, and my first connection with Ball State was the T-shirt that Richard Dreyfus wears in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977, 78. And uh, what's always fun about that, there's mountains in Muncie. <laughs> Not quite accurate. Not quite but... accurate, but yeah, it's kind of like the mountains in Illinois during the fugitive, but mm-hmm. little things like that. So, um, did you? I mean, originally from Boston, do you? Are you able to point when you were able to watch things and and see glaring glaring errors or what they got right or what they got wrong, whether it came to movies and TV, or were you just not that geeky? <laughs> I was that geek. I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, but I absolutely, it would drive me crazy when seeing certain pan shots that clearly the streets were not anywhere in Boston, but then it was overhead <laughs> aerials, you know, going along uh-huh. along the harbor. I lived in, uh, after after my newspaper, I lived in the Chicago suburbs, and this was, uh, this was right when ER came out. So yeah, there was a lot of people talking about, okay, this shot is here, that shot is there, that's not happening, there's no way. Um, the other one I remember was uh, there was a film called A Family Thing with um, I think Billy Bob Thornton wrote it. It's Robert Duvall and James Earl Jones, and they find out you know they're older guys and they find out that they are related. Um, and so Duvall gets to visit Jones's character, and Duvall's character gets kicked out of the a famous jazz club on the north side of Chicago called the Green Mill, and a great place. And then he starts walking, and then there's a couple shots, and then he's on the canal. By Lake Michigan, that's a long walk. <laughs> Unless you're training for the marathon, Bob, that you didn't do that. You may have stumbled and taken a cab for all we know, but just little, little tiny things like that. Should have stuck to a little bit tighter, more like I'm thinking of like high fidelity. You know, seeing reckless records. You know, in the yes, in that's also like true. That. Well, and and then the whole thing that was uh, actually written in London, but that's yeah, another thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But it is nice to see the Alligator Records logo. I host the Blue Show. That's what I do. So anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, go check out the cover story of Nuvo and uh, check it out and, you know, be be on the lookout because we should 
you know, hopefully have more films going here. More films mean more business. More business means more money. And, and we look like a state that's in the 21st century. So there. Um, so I guess, Emily, you're, you're my guest. Have you, have you watched any movies lately? New, old, and different? You, please tell me that you didn't like study up the night before like a quiz. No, no, I did not. Uh, you have honestly, things to do. <laughs> honestly, the last movie that I saw in theaters was Star Wars. Um, the Force Awakens, right? Yes. Okay, because yes, you're, yes. you're, you're not that old. Stop. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was The Force Awakens, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that. But Well, let's, <laughs> all right, let's hear it. Um, I think it was absolutely playing to a nostalgia from childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely... Definitely written by, you know, huge Star Wars fan. It, you know, it didn't feel like a Lucasfilm. And as long as you don't expect it to feel like a Lucasfilm, I think that you set yourself up to be, to have a little bit better of a, an experience with it. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you saw the last, uh, how, how many of the films have you seen in theaters? And and, and I'm not going to ask age, but I mean, as far as having the, the inside the theater cinematic experience. Um, episodes one through three. Were the ones I saw in theaters. Yeah, you gotta erase those. Yeah, you gotta. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, exactly. See, you, you, you know, you were of a different age than I am. I was seven when the first Star Wars film came out, and and it's hard to recreate that. Um, I'm at the stage where you know, guys, people my age are going, are now the parents that bring their kids to go see Star Wars. Um, the night I saw it, there was a dad and his five year old son behind me, and and the kid was first couple of minutes, the kid was starting to ask questions, and I was I was oh god. I don't want to be, don't be that kid. Don't be. And, and then, and then he stopped talking because he got kind of washed over by, by the film itself. So anyway, that I understand that piece of nostalgia. I understand. I think so long as you forget the last three films and mission accomplished. And I, and I think for the most part, star Wars does that. And it's, it's no different. This is no different than what JJ Abrams has already done with the first two star star Trek films. Mm -hmm. What's happened with the last couple of bond films and what's happened with, and even what happened with Creed Yeah, of giving us a mixture of something old and something new. And you're not reinventing the wheel, but you remind us why we like it. And uh, and with a bigger budget and better better technical aspects. Yeah, yeah. You know, throwing some extra CGI in there and make sure to add the costumes in so it doesn't just make all of your true film geeks just seethe in their seats. Right. And 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 the two youngsters have much more chemistry than Hayden and and Natalie. And there's that. So. Yeah, yeah. And the point of diversity with it is always always appreciated for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you had James Earl Jones' voice 40 years ago. But, yeah, I, I know. I understand. There was a, uh, a Saturday Night Live had a I'm, – I'm, I'm also telling her skits she needs to watch online. But there was a – I'm taking notes. Yeah, I know you are. Uh, but there there was – SNL did a, a skit of uh, celebrity uh, auditions. So there's people – so there's a mixture of people impersonating uh, famous people. And then real – like Daisy and John are in it as well. I mean, she's doing scenes with – Somebody posing as Sofia Vergara. Another one is John Mayer. And then there's John just laughing, saying a black stormtrooper, right? <laughs> oh, look. Yeah. So anyway, little things like John Hamm shows up, Emma Stone. It's it's a lot of fun. They did this, uh, gosh, when uh, a decade ago with uh, the re-release, the reissues, I believe. And so there's Kevin Spacey doing Christopher Walken, doing Jack Lemmon, doing Walter Matthau. Um, somebody's, oh, um, oh, gosh. Yeah, it is impersonating Barbara Streisand auditioning for Leia. I mean, it's fun. Oh, that's so, wonderful. Yeah, that, 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 that'll kill time at work. So, um, Cool. All right, I want to, uh, so speaking of Natalie Portman, I uh, there was we're in that time of the year where, it, we still, you know, a lot of the Oscar-nominated films are still in theaters. So, and you should go check those out because you know you you want to check out the Film Geeks Final Four, and um, 
we're all and we're still waiting for some Oscar nominated films to come in the town. I'm still waiting on Son of Saul as well as 45 Years. Mm-hmm. But we're also at that time where the studios have to put out something, anything. Anything at all. Anything at all. And so you have the Coast Guard movie, which you can read Ed's review of on Nouveau.net, mm-hmm. and, uh, and as well as the print edition. And, uh, and as he pointed out, of course, you know, New England accents and over dramatic scores and a life affirming message. It's, mm-hmm. it's everything that he enjoys. So, anyway, that, that is there. But, but uh, as well as Fifty Shades of Black. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe that was screened for the press, and that's, that's really okay. Um, because you need well, you need. Tw- I will give the. I will give it one point. It's happening now as opposed to a year from now. Hmm. So you know the Fifty Shades jokes, maybe not nearly as stale as the Magic Mike jokes, but it's still it's still pretty it's still, still pretty, pretty stale. Yeah, still pretty stale. But uh, um, but no, opening in theaters this weekend with, with and it'll be with very little fanfare, and I'm I'm intrigued. It's called Jane Got a Gun. And it is it stars and is produced by Natalie Portman. And normally, ladies and gentlemen, if if a film has a troubled shoot, they're not all disasters. Look at Titanic. Look at Apocalypse Now. Um, but I remember reading a lot about this. I'm a, I'm a Western buff because I'm old and decrepit. And and they have tried to have female centric westerns in the past. And and they're not always. The Ballad of Little Joe with Susie Amos, they're more like Banditas with Salma Hayek and uh, Penelope Cruz. Or they're Bad Girls with a, a, a Wild Bunch female version with Drew Barrymore, Mary Stuart Masterson, Andy McDowell, and somebody else. And I'm terrible. I'm a pig. But um, So anyway, the fact that Portman is uh, starring in this as well as producing this, but it, it had a lot of, it had a lot of trouble getting off the ground immediately. Now we know it's it's difficult to get a movie started. That's not quite what we're looking at here. Um, the timeline, and this is, this goes back to 2013, was you had uh, Natalie Portman starring, and then it's directed by uh, Lynn. Original director was Lynn Ramsey, who did the great film We Need to Talk About Kevin with uh, Tilda Swinton. And uh, and and it's a story between uh, uh, Portman's character teaming up with her ex-lover because her husband's been shot badly, and a gang of outlaws are coming to invade the house and collect the bounty. So you know Portman's the star. Michael Fassbender was supposed to be the ex-lover, and the villain was supposed to be Joel Edgerton, who now is who's been recast as the ex-lover and also has a co-writing credit in the film. Stay with mm-hmm. me. Um, that's August of 12. March of th- and that was announced that that cast was already done. In March of 13, Michael Fassbender leads the film because of scheduling conflicts from X-Men. So Joel Edgerton takes the X-Lever role. Jude Law play- is now cast as the villain. A week later, the director leaves the production. And oh gosh. Th- and therefore Jude Law leaves the production. And a new director comes in. It's Gavin O'Connor, who um, whose films included Miracle and Warrior, both films I liked a great deal. And he worked with uh, Noah Emmerich, who plays the husband. And he's worked with in he was in Miracle, and of course he worked with Joel Edgerton and Warrior. A uh, new cinematographer came in. Writer was brought in for rewrites. Uh, there was going to be a new casting for the villain. They got Bradley Cooper, and less than a month he leaves because of scheduling conflicts to American Hustle. Then Ewan McGregor comes in uh, five days later to play the villain. The film happens, and the studio, uh, the studio that made the film goes belly up. The Weinstein Company buys it. It stays on the shelf for a year and a half. Here it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, I wonder, 
and I, I, I hope somebody does a write-up on this, because, uh, whether it's Vanity Fair or some some magazine of that ilk, because there's there's a. I wondered if originally if Portman wanted to make a girl power western, and how much of it was a combination of a western that a female can star in. And I'm I'm also thinking of Sharon Stone in The Quick and the Dead, which um, was kind of her trying to do her best Clint Eastwood with better hair. Um, but also this there's this triangle between her ex lover and the uh, and uh, and her husband. And there's a number of flashbacks. The film's only an hour and forty minutes, so it does feel a little longer. But the but the flashbacks of how these three characters and the the villain Ewan McGregor, all how how they are all connected. Um, so I I understand that you wanted to have this emotional center, so you're not just doing a, an emotionless spaghetti western from the '60s. That's fine. Um, and then we get to the big shootout, which takes place in a single space, uh, remind remnants of Rio Bravo or the outlaw Josie Wales, or if you're going to do a modern take, Assault on Precinct 13, the original, not the remake. Um, and there's bullets a flying everywhere, but there's a there's a few moments that just it's it's uneven when it comes to action. If you want a big bloody shootout. Um, it's shot weird. I'll just mm-hmm. I'll just say there's there's a fun moment involving jars, ball jar, jars, mason jars. By the way, I so you see the ball mason jar. So thank you, Ball Brothers and the Ball State University. But there's scenes involving mason jars filled with kerosene and broken glass and nails, which has a, a very 60s spaghetti western feel to it. And the payoff is just not quite there. Um, and there's a few clunker lines. And Ewan McGregor looks very made up and almost cartoonish as, oh, the, no. as the villain. Yeah, just a little. That's that he didn't grow that thing on his face. But uh, and 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 nice eye makeup, by the way. So anyway, almost glossy at times, which is hard to do when you're doing a gritty western shot in New Mexico. So you know, it, to to steal a line from Chris Lloyd, it's not hella bad. It, it probably could have been a lot a lot worse it could have been a lot better either as well but uh you know kind of an uneven uneven western and and hopefully <coughs> it's all right would Excuse you like me. some water do you want some more water i'm okay thank okay. you um anyway um it, it it has a feel of a film that is released in january they had to get it out there and they finally did so i guess everybody involved can kind of move on that's a and that's kind of a bummer because i really like everybody who's involved with this um and joel especially joel edgerton who had uh, quite the uh, an underrated m- film made earlier this year called The Gift, which he starred in as well as wrote and directed. So anyway, this should this should probably uh, Jane Got a Gun will probably be out on video in about three months. So you can you can check that out for yourself. All right, um, I'm going to take a short break so she can get some more water, and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of titles that are on DVD and Blu-ray, and we have Dead People We Like because we don't have time for Dead People We Don't Like. And then, uh, if we have time, some stuff uh, inspired by the AV Club here in The Onion, which is the one of the sor- news sources here at Film Sociology. So stick around. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org.
Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msoci at WFYI.org, also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Soce, hanging out with Emily Taylor of Nuvo, and now joining us in studio after his big, harsh Film. <laughs> Kobe Slagle's back in studio. How are you, sir? I am good. It is good to be here. Good to have you here. So the music you heard during the break is uh, Lalo Schifrin's uh, score to the 1968 action classic Bullet with Steve McQueen. And I bring this up besides the fact that this is one of the first films I made you see, Mr. Slagle, if I mm, remember correctly. It was after the Spaghetti Western phase and after French Connection. That should never be a phase. That should I... be a way of life. <laughs> So this is yeah during your seventy your sixties and seventies phase yeah Kobe's seventies period <laughs> so so Kobe has so Emily Kobe has some code words like when he says that the seventies were different time that's his nice way of saying that the movie is slow <laughs> Kobe is also not a fan of White Rock of the seventies with the exception of Queen and Rush. Rush. And I keep trying to find exceptions to the rule. I'm still working on that. There so. are exceptions. I like Aerosmith. There are exceptions. Come you do on. like Aerosmith. I like Aerosmith. Really? Yeah. Okay. Before they had three ballads on every album. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we we like crazy coked up Aerosmith. Kind of like crazy coked up Oliver Stone. <laughs> Hi, Sam. Anyway, in this week's AV Club, which is a great uh, valuable news source here at Film Sociology, uh, that's The Onion, they, they're going to do a regular column uh, called A History of Violence, and it's going back and looking at the uh, the top action film but of this particular movie, year. A History of Violence. No, not A History of Violence. Ooh. Staircase is uncomfortable. Um, but but anyway, they're going to go back to, uh, you know, starting with the genre's birth and moving up to, as they put, whatever Vin Diesel's doing this very minute. So they start with <laughs> 1968, and they start with Bullet. So And it talks about the importance of the, cha- the car chase and how they think action cinema begins in 1968 with Steve McQueen. So, Kobe, there's that. You can read that later. So there. Okay. Um, is there an article about how the car chase scene in the French Connection is better than the car chase scene in Bullet? Um, no, because well, we'll find out when. No, it gets, because it's not. But you know what? I'm, <laughs> I uh, I think they can live in the same world without having to have a, a number one or a number two next to it. They can. Uh, they can coexist. You. So it sounds like you prefer French Connection over Bullet. Yes. With your snide attitude, yes, there. Not even a question. Not even a question. Wow. Okay. Have you seen either? I've seen French Connection. Okay. I'm inclined to, I love the action scenes in that. Yeah. It's also also a little more on the dangerous side. Thanks, William Friedkin. <laughs> it's only it's only New York civilians wandering around not knowing you're, movie, you're making a movie. But uh, you know, to be fair, on the flip side, of course, Bullet won best got the Oscar for best editing because it looks kind of cool. It looks really cool. Anyway, we'll find out when the column goes to 1971. We shall see. Hmm. We shall see. All right. A uh, couple titles I want to talk about that are on uh, DVD and Blu-ray this week. And, Kobe, I, I, I thought of you and your lovely wife as uh, as I watched the Bradley Cooper chef movie, Burnt, because oh, all chefs that's out should already? look like – Yeah, it's out already. Wow. Yeah, kind of kind of came and went at the same time. And uh, and as you, Kobe and I are big food food junkies. We're not foodies because that makes us sound like we should be on a certain part of town. Food junkies, though. <laughs> Well, you have to eat. I'm a bigger <laughs> junkie than Kobe is, and I have the proof of it. Look down here. Um, anyway, but no, this is this is Bradley Cooper not playing Anthony Bourdain. 
He's playing some other high, high-tempered, tense, burnt-out show. Are you going to do the thing? It's so not Anthony <laughs> Bourdain. I don't have to. You just did. <laughs> I'm sure he's not the only self-destructive, brilliant chef, but um, the Elvis movie is so not Elvis. <laughs> no, it's that's like um, Missy Pyle. So not playing Nancy Grace <laughs> in Gone Girl. No, it's not. A blonde shrew on TV screaming, what about the children? No, it's not Nancy Grace. No. Mm-mm. Anyway, this, so not Anthony Bourdain. He's in the big short. That's another movie for another time. Uh, no, but this is, this. he plays the the burnt out chef who was disgraced, and now he's, he's, he's clean and sober, and he's got to have therapy sessions with Emma Thompson, and, and he has to have an affair with Sienna Miller because she's female and works in a kitchen. Of course. Uh, as much fun, well, as much fun as she's to look at, not necessary. Um, and then, of course, he has his ragtag bunch. He makes him. He even makes a comparison to the Seven Samurai when it comes to the people that he picks up to work with him in his kitchen. So, yeah, there's a, there's a bit of cooking whiplash to it. And yes, he screams and throws things, but you know he can he can plate a dish like nobody's business. So we we've we've seen stories like these before. The food the food of course looks great. Daniel Brawl has a lot of fun as the uh, as the maitre d. But uh but I think we this is probably from us watching too much Food Network and Cooking Channel that uh, we've we've seen these people. One of which who's on our show who's not yet that yelly screamy. Well, he is a little yelly, but he's not as he's not as throw thingy or uh <laughs> People ha- people committing suicide after being on his show thingy. That's uh, uh, <laughs> hi Gordon. Uh, yeah, he's not on the show. Robert is, and we love Robert. And we're trying. I'm trying to get him on the show next week because he's got a new show. That'd be cool. So we'll see. But yeah. Anyway, that's out there. Also on DVD and Blu-ray this week, a film probably the for me the most underrated film of 2016. It didn't get enough uh, love, although it did get a runner-up for the original Vision Award by the FJA, the Spike Lee joint Chirac, which is wow. Spike Lee's version of Lysistrata. Big kudos to 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 Tiona Paris who plays Lysistrata. Um, that's somebody that should be brought up into the argument of the whitewashing. I mean, everybody's bringing up Idris Elba and Will Smith and Sam Jackson, even though with the exception of, of Idris Elba, the other two, not even close when it comes to getting nominated material. Um, but what I liked about Chirac is the fact that he keeps it as close to the Greek theater as possible. It's not it's not um, uh, it's not clueless. It's not 10 things I hate about you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not she's the man where you take a, a classic play and then you make with it what you will. I mean, he does that here, but it's almost entirely in verse. Um, the because it's a uh, a comedy about, uh, of course, women, two two gangs on the south of Chicago, south side of Chicago, and they're the women folk decide to go on a sex strike to stop all the violence. So there's there's relevancy with it today, and there's a lot of crude humor in it, which to various degrees, which the Greek plays had back then, the Greek and the Roman plays. So style wise, it's it's a little all over the place, but you kind of expect that from Spike Lee, just like you would from Oliver Stone, and uh, I. I wound up liking it a lot more than I thought I would. And Tayona Paris is very, very good in this. So, Kobe. That was a good movie. Yes, thank you. It is. Um, Kobe, did you read Did you read Goosebumps at all? That's not – I know you're not a scary movie guy. Right. I wasn't sure if you were a scary lit person. Um, I did read Goosebumps when I was like eight. And then you grew out of it. Mm-hmm. Emily? I did. You did? So, you, you want to see Jack Black and Goosebumps? I would rather hold on to what I remember, to be honest. (laughs) 
And Jack Black's on your list, Cody. Yeah, not a fan. That's the shame. Mm-hmm. We were talking about high fidelity earlier. I see earlier. Jack Black and take an automatic pass. <laughs> take an automatic uh, archer. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay, so that's that. Nope. <laughs> Thank nope. You. <laughs> All right, so anyway, that's out there as well. A couple of old titles of note. Um, it was I was watching my Blu-ray of Hitchcock's North by Northwest, mm-hmm. and one of the films they brought. It's fun when you watch a documentary about uh, a filmmaker, and in this case, Hitchcock, and the fact that it's um, it's a Warner Brothers feature. It's North by Northwest. So all the people they interview, whether it's uh, Curtis Hansen and uh or you have um William Friedkin it's fun because when they're listed they are listed for the films that they directed for Warner Brothers <laughs> so William Friedkin director The Exorcist mm-hmm. Curtis Hansen director LA Confidential and of course with Hitchcock because they were talking about his his filmography as a whole they're all Warner Brother Hitchcock titles. You're not seeing Psycho or The Birds. You're seeing The Wrong Man. You're seeing I Confess, uh, Dial M for Murder, Strangers on a Train. Well, one of the films out on Blu-ray this week is The Wrong Man with uh, Henry Fonda and Vera Miles. One of it, it's probably not the it's, it might be the fifteenth Hitchcock film you think of. Not not the top, definitely not top five, definitely not top ten. But Hitchcock loves to do the. Um, are you looking up the title right now? Um, I'm looking up who Vera Miles <laughs> is. Vera Miles. Oh, oh, this is the part of the show where you, yeah, you Google image her. Well, I, I feel like she. You know her from something? I do not. <laughs> You're thinking of somebody else. Not yeah. Sarah Miles. Now I'm thinking of maybe Vera Allen. Okay. Well, this is, anyway, while you're doing that hot keyboard action here at Film Sociology, <laughs> Gooby, this is when usually, yeah, Gooby, uh, Kobe is Googling vintage ladies. Um,. But it's it's another version of Hitchcock's uh, wrong, you know, with the uh, person at the wrong place at the wrong time, mm-hmm. which he he already did in The Man Who Knew Too Much. He also did in North by Northwest. But it's also very good and and uh, nice black and white cinematography and always solid work from from Henry Fonda. So, you, did you find the right Vera Ellen? Oh, Vera Ellen. I see. Not not not, not the same woman. Nope. Nope. Not at all. So, hey, uh, Cobe, uh-huh. do we have time for Chris Lloyd's? Uh, fine contribution to the show yeah we do yeah are you sure we do yeah okay i just uh you, you know, found i was thinking are we gonna do that today yeah we're gonna do this yeah thing. we're gonna we're gonna play doing that. our uh the annual show of uh dead people we like uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a pretty big one this we week, don't right? have time for dead people we don't like yes. we'd never have time for dead people we don't like and it's been a, it's been a busy month and as i've been saying it's been a busy month in the creative world when it comes to uh people are very uh actors writers directors musicians but uh apparently one of the one of the nicest guys and one of the best sports as far as being a good sport when it comes to his image actor Abe Vigoda Oh yeah, of course. Best known for Barney Miller, and of course he was in The Godfather. But mm-hmm. but in the I believe it was the early '80s, it was People Magazine accidentally referred to him as the late Abe Vigoda. Oh no! Yeah, and then he had to put out. A, I think he put out a full page ad in Variety saying he's not dead. And then this is this became a thing. Like Conan, I, there was a website asking, you know, is Ava go to dead? I think you just click on it and it says no. <laughs> um, but yeah, Conan O'Brien, I think Jimmy Fallon would do this as well. They would just have these Ava go to updates. So um, trying and again, he played Tessio in The Godfather. He's the one that asked uh, Michael for one more chance for old times' sake. 
and he just shakes his head. You remember that? And he just shakes his head. Oh no, I'm looking at. Oh, uh, I I just googled the. Is Ava go to dead? Ava go to still alive? And it says and then no. You go to Ava go to status. Ava go is dead. Yeah. So, but but I mean, career actor going all the way back to uh, the TV series. You can reload the page for an update. Oh, that's terrible. But anyway, he he got with it. Anyway, he was in going back to 1949 with the TV series uh, Suspense, Studio One in Hollywood, Three Rooms in Manhattan. But yeah, did The Godfather in '72, and then appeared in films like The Dawn Is Dead, not Dawn of the Dead, uh, Newman's Law. A lot again, lots of TV. The Cheap Detective, and and that was right after Barney Miller and Fish. Um, a lot of TV. Cannonball. My God, he was in Cannonball Run too. I yeah. Um, the stuff. Not Bianca talking about great movies. You've not seen Meet Me in St. Louis. Yeah, um, that's the stuff. He played Grandpa <laughs> in Look Who's Talking. He was in Keaton's Cop. He was of course the Chief in Joe versus the Volcano. Uh, he was in Wesley. Oh. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Well, you've known who Ava Goda is. Uh, Fist of Honor, Me and the Kid, Sugar Hill, Jury Duty, and much, much more. So, so thank you to Abe for being such a good sport. And yeah, great look. Kobe, were you a fan of uh, of Tangerine Dream? I don't know Tangerine Dream. I'm surprised you being a musician nut and all, but. Uh, I hope I'm saying that. Edgar Froge, uh, one of the founding members of Tangerine Dream, died at the age of 70 this week, and was one of. And this was a band that um, had a number had a number of soundtracks in the uh, early 80s, and uh, were one of the groups, kind of like Vangelis, where a lot of synth and uh, and that started to be incorporated into everyday film scores. Not my wife's favorite era, but. Uh, she calls it the fame music if you watch the original mm-hmm. Alan Parker film. So, um, and she also fames, blames Van Gillis. But Tangerine Dream did the soundtracks for William Friedkin's underrated film Sorcerer, his remake of The Wages of Fear. He also they also did the music for Thief, the great James Caan film with a young Michael Mann. This is also one of the guys that would I think one of the first filmmakers to um, hose down the city streets. So it looks shiny and glossy and very 80s. Um, did the music for Risky Business, Firestarter, Flashpoint, Vision Quest, Red Heat, Legend, for you fans of uh, Tom Cruise sci-fi movies directed by Ridley Scott, and Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's first big film. And another uh, musician death of note, Paul Kantner, who was one of the founding members of Jefferson Airplane, died this week at the age of 74. The band's music appeared in... 83 credits, and Jefferson Airplane was apparently one of those bands you had to use someone to love in order to let people know it's the 1960s when you have those flashbacks. You know, boom. It's like if you go to if it's oh, it must be the 1960s. Yeah, exactly. Like like uh, London Calling. If it's if you have to go to London in the 70s, you played that. Back in the USSR, if you have to go to the big country, I don't just. I also remember Jim Carrey karaokeing that in the Cable Guy. But uh, also, actually, the, the version of someone that you love that I really like is the Coen Brothers film A Serious Man. So, anyway, pick up some surrealistic pillow and, and enjoy that. <laughs> This is an album. So, all right, uh, going back to the Onion for a little bit. Um, this week's inventory: Surely you can't be serious. Sixteen movie parodies that still hold up. Oh, interesting. And and they did this because Fifty Shades of Black opened this week, not on the list. Any uh, any guesses on who you think? And I don't think these are in a any order, but the first one that parodies you parodies can... that hold up. Yeah. 
Feeding is the number one thing they talk about. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's in the title I just read. Parodies that hold up, and it's... What was the thing I said before that? I don't know. The Fifty Shades of Black? He's not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> no, the article's called Surely You Can't Be Serious. Oh. <laughs> but the parody of that. Airplane. Oh, I thought... What'd you think? You thought they were... <laughs> oh, well, I don't think of Airplane as a parody. You d- Why not? What's it? What is it? Parody? Oh my gosh! The disaster, the airplane disaster movie, Airport, Airport seventy five, Airport seventy seven, so yeah, Concord Airport seventy nine. You never, never saw yet. those. Um, Zero Hour, which is actually, if you get a chance, another thing for you to watch on YouTube. Um, Zero Hour was a nineteen fifties kind of B movie of a of a plane disaster. Sterling Hayden is in it, but they literally lift lines from that movie and use them in Airplane. So there's. What'd you think Airplane was? Just a goofy movie about a plane? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Kobe, if he had his way, would call it goofy movie about a plane. That, I have had all it with favor. all these blankety blank goofy things on this blankety blank plane. All in favor of calling it goofy movie about a plane? <laughs> One. All in, all in favor of calling it Airplane? Everybody else. <laughs> Sorry, Kobe. Yeah. Voted out. Nice picture. Always fun. Cream at the bar. Number two, Young Frankenstein. You knew that was a parody. Yeah. Okay. See, okay, you, when you said parodies, I immediately went to like scary movie. Well, and and, and that's kind of yeah. And those that's are where my mind went to. God yeah. off. You mean god awful? Yes. So, well, and of course they they bring up the fact that because it's Fifty Shades of Black, which is more it's more scary movie than the films that are on this list that I'm talking about here. So yeah. Um, Young Frankenstein, of course, big trivia uh, for you trivia nerds. Actual sets from the Frankenstein film used cool. in Young Frankenstein. Always very cool. Number three, Murder by Death, which um, more people should check out. It's not bad. It's a uh, a group of detectives. <laughs> Ringing endorsement. It's not bad. It's not hella bad. <laughs> I'm no, run it's, right out and get that. But That's it's- like, you know what that is? That's like when you go to a restaurant. You ask somebody if have you had the. So and so. Yeah, have you had the, the this, fish. that, or the other thing? It's not. It's it's not bad. It's not that. from film junkies. It's not that. Around. It's not that bad. It's so not, it's a little bit bad, but not that bad. That that's not tourable. Yeah. <laughs> but no, this is um, a series of uh, an all star cast all playing mock ups of famous detectives. Like you have, uh, uh, oh, you have. Peter Sellers playing Charlie, a Charlie Chan-esque character. Sorry, it's 1976. Peter Falk doing a kind of Bogart cum shoe. David Niven and Maggie Smith doing Nick and Nora. Uh, James Coco doing something that's not Hercule Poirot. Anyway, one of those. Number four, this is Spinal Tap. Yeah. Yeah. I remember these bands. I was alive when these bands were out, and they're... Yeah. I just remember my showing it to my daughter, and, Dad, these guys are really stupid. <laughs> Yes, honey. That's what they did. Number five, the Ruddles. All you need is cash. You never saw the Ruddles? Nope. I have to work on that. You well, you're a Beatles guy. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've I've seen your chart of Beatles. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The Beatles album. Oh, Kobe is heavy that. Beatles discography breakdown. <laughs> it had graphics and everything. It was cool. Anyway, um, the, there's one with the Ruddles with Eric Idle, and it's you know think of all the Beatles stories you can think of. They make yeah. fun of those. Number six, Top Secret, which I need to watch again because it's Val Kilmer before he went crazy mm. and fat, <laughs> and but it's um, the spy movies and the kind of the fifties Elvis movies, all mm. rolled up into this was this was the the Zucker's follow up to Airplane. 
Um, number seven, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which I really enjoyed. It's uh, Steve Martin, Rachel Ward, and it's a universal film. He plays the detective. It's shot in black and white. And they splice detective movies from the 40s and 50s. And and huh. he writes the dialogue based on the scenes that they borrow from White Heat and Crisscross and a number of uh, detective black and white film noirs. A lot of fun. Um, number eight, Johnny Dangerously. Did you ever watch that? Mm-mm. No. Fun gangster movie thing. Need, uh, spoof. Need to watch that again. Number nine, Spaceballs. Never seen it. Wow. Really? really? Never seen it. Wow. The, the, even the lady said, really? Kobe, we should watch this. I was I was seven. To, that's his wife. His wife does not sound like me. Because um, <laughs> when you sound like when you're supposed to impersonate a female, it either has to be soft or shrill, but it's not. But you just go. I'm Matt. I mean, I'm yeah. Bianca. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The great impression. Just say you are that person. I'm Bianca. I like Jane Austen. <laughs> I'm Kobe. I wish the Colts would get more signed free agents. Yeah, it's not that. Uh, number nine, Spaceballs, we talked about. Yeah, um, need to watch. I think also that, that was brought up because Mel Brooks wants to make a sequel to Spaceballs because mm-hmm. of Force Awakens. Um, number 10, Police Squad, or Naked Gun. Number right. Yeah, like that. not bad. Number 11, I'm going to get you, sucker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But to be to be fair, I would, Black Dynamite should also be on that list. Number 12. <laughs> so you're saying the list is flawed? Yes, yes, I am. Uh, number twelve, fear of a black hat, the rap, the rap parody that was not CB four, um, and number thirteen, Hot Shots Part Two, which sort of made which made fun of Rambo movies more than the first one, which made fun of Top Gun. Number fourteen, not another teen movie. So actually, there is one from the fill in the blank movie genre, and it it shows the scene that all you have to do is put down your ponytail and take off your glasses, and you're gorgeous. Of course. Of course. And finally, oh, there's two more. Um, number 15, Wet Hot American Summer. Okay. Need to watch. Mm-hmm. I need to watch that, yeah, again. See that again. And number 16, and Emma's asked about this, Team America World Police. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I own two films that both involve puppet sex. Don't judge me. It's my <laughs> job. And I'm a Melissa still in theater. So, all right. Um, Kobe, quick. All right. One minute. You know what? I'll say I'll save the question for next week's show. Of uh, so ponder this: What soundtrack or score would you like to see performed live? Ooh! So think of that for next week, ladies and gentlemen. Some words to live by. Silent breed is people. Zardoz has spoken. Emily, thank you so much for hanging out. Please, Thank you so much for having me. Please come back, despite us. <laughs> please come back. You haven't scared me away entirely. You're fine. <laughs> we'll work on that. Bob Crane box set. All right, next week, of course, we start Saturdays at 10, Sundays at 2, and Mondays at 10. So next week, a special brunch edition of Ooh. Film Sociology. Yes, I'll bring the mimosas. You're listening to the Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point at WFYI.org. We go. Good night, Fort Myers. Good night, California.